So let's not forget that Alvin Bragg uh, not only is he setting precedent for bringing criminal charges for the very first time in this nation's history against a former president, but he's taking a case, uh, and this is the uh, hush money that was paid to Stormy Daniels back in 2016, just before the election. He's taking a case that the feds said they wouldn't prosecute. Here comes the former president. Let's just listen into this. President Trump, will you come speak to us, President Trump? Wow. And he went right into the courtroom. We thought that he was going to come up to that camera, but uh, change of plans to what we had been advised. Dark, a day which will live in infamy. <laughs> Mr. President Trump has been arraigned on charges, 38 charges, I believe his number. We should know. Uh, we'll begin into that. People may know I am a grand jury expert. Uh, That's Matt, I'm very thankful that you were able to take the time out of your busy schedule after being the deciding vote um, in, <laughs> in pressing charges against Donald Trump. Yes, exactly. I was in there. Uh, even though I'm from Brooklyn, I was in the Manhattan Grand Jury Room. Uh, I finagled my way out thanks to Alvin Bragg and George Soros. And I got my way onto that. And me and uh, uh, 11 other resistance libs uh, basically <laughs> guarded the actual law. Uh, along with the uh, 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 district attorney and said, you know, impeach the motherfucker already, the, the dang Cheeto. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, no, we will talk about that. Uh, Trump's uh, arraignment uh, in the uh, in the uh, and I will share my um, experience as a grand juror. I've served six out of 20 days on the grand jury in uh, Brooklyn. Uh, and uh, I can't get any details of any of those cases there, but I can talk about the sort of general process um, and what it might have been like, and uh, we'll do that in the post game this evening. Yeah, patreon.com slash reckoning, and just a little bit, we're going to be talking about UAW um, stuff, and we're going to be debuting a new segment after that called Quick Takes. Um, but, you know, we started a little bit late, so we might need to jump right into this top-line story of the evening, Matt, if you're good. Um, and that's what's happening in, in Tennessee. Um, we still need to do our gun episode on the program. We've been talking about that for a little while. Um, you know, but people know that, like, I'm not somebody who's in 100% aligned with the kind of dominant contemporary, like, gun discourse on, like, the liberal left, right? And I just say that up top to say that um, this fight is about something so much bigger than even like guns or common sense gun reform in this country. I mean, this is a basic democratic question and understand understandably. And thankfully, I think this has gotten a decent amount of coverage. I think it deserves a lot more um, because, you know, for all the crying that we're going to get about the, the, the Trump prosecution that's going on, this is probably one of the 
most clear examples of, of a direct threat to democracy. I mean, I don't know. Not, not, I don't need to put all these things on a hierarchy, but like even more in some ways than some of the gerrymandering or all these other kinds of things, like straight up expelling members of the House of Tennessee, I think is a real true travesty. Um, I think everybody knows the backstory here, but I'll just sort of break it down right quick for folks is that, you know, last week there's a protest in, um, in, in support of basic gun reform in the state of Tennessee, a state that like Texas has been sort of like sprinting um, forward and trying to eradicate any kind of basic gun protection to gun laws. I will just say, as I always note to folks that, you know, as a Southerner myself, like the thing that's always frustrating to me about the way these things get framed is that like, we're returning back to our roots. Well, if you look at states like Tennessee, if you look at states like my home state of Texas, you know, the first things that a lot of these governments did actually was restrict your ability to be carrying a firearm or a knife out in public places. Putting all that aside for a second, student protest understandable after a mass shooting in the state of Tennessee, right? Truly, in a lot of ways, an example of, of what a democracy looks like, right? People right. are frustrated with what they're getting from their government. They show up in person to protest to show their dissatisfaction with it. Well, the Republican-controlled legislature wasn't having it um, and has now is, is now attempting to expel three Democratic members from the state house in Tennessee um, for a lack of decorum, uh, for participating in, in these protests, which, again, were like extremely, extremely mild. And look, um, you know. For, for a party that, you know, just up the road for me in, in Waco just had a big rally for Donald Trump that was celebrating the January 6th, uh, you know, moment. Um, you know, it's like it's pretty wild to now sit around and say that, like, oh, these people were protesting inside the state capitol. You can't have that. Right. Um, I wanted to play a, a couple of things right quick for you all because it's, it's getting really serious. There's going to be a vote on Thursday um, unless you see significant um, Republican breaking in it um very likely that these members will be expelled just because of how dominated the legislature is there by republicans um but i'm just going to play a short segment of 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 this this is from yesterday where one of the members who is um at threat of being expelled from the tennessee state house uh, justin jones is assaulted by another member of the tennessee legislature and just to be clear who is jones in this video Jones is the, yeah, good point. Um, Jones is the one who's holding the camera. So you aren't going to see him. You're going to see um, Republican member Lafferty um, who strikes him. And look, I mean, like, <laughs> that's not like a, a bump. That's a hit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, if you're talking about um, behavior that's sort of unbecoming of an elected official, um, I think striking somebody on the House floor, I mean, we have a nasty history um, in this country of doing that. Um, you know, and like the, the focus on these three representatives is ridiculous, as people have rightfully pointed out time and time again. Um, you know, there are members of the House right now who have assaulted teenagers um, who didn't face this kind of uh, pushback from the State House. Lafferty, um, you know, this is his opinion, but should also be noted, is somebody who has gone on record as saying that the three-fifths compromise um, was actually an attempt to 
slow roll slavery, right? Which is like the <laughs> height of revision, right? <laughs> like, what can we say here other than just sort of putting the, the facts out? This is a direct threat to democracy. We're talking about 210,000 Tennesseans who the Republicans in government are basically saying, we're going to wipe the slate clean. Y'all don't get representatives of your own choosing, right? Because we have a majority in, in, in the state house, right? Like this is as clear as it gets to subverting democracy. This isn't like a kind of like, oh, we've made voting harder. So maybe some people are going to be less inclined to vote or we're prosecuting people who make minor mistakes on, on uh, their voter registration. This is as clear as it gets. We're going to overturn elections effectively. Mm -hmm. um, in, in these areas and take these people out of their positions. Yeah. And, uh, uh we're going to get to Keith, uh, in a second, but I mean, the similar, uh, things going on with Wisconsin, finally, uh, I mean, you see, uh, the results of Scott Walker 10 years ago, basically taking over the state attacking unions and gerrymandering to the point where they often have more cumulative votes and huge margins uh, the Democrats do and still lose to Republicans, um, never really controlling those legislatures. But, you have a situation where they have they could vote for, uh, for the Supreme Court to be four or three Democrat, even though it's like not they don't say Democrat or Republican. We all know which way they are. And then you have another uh, simultaneously a state Senate race uh, and the Republicans say, if we win that, we'll get a two thirds majority in the Senate and we'll probably just impeach one of your Supreme Court justices anyway. Like this is more troubling than uh, a president getting arraigned uh, on the indictment to me, um, and I think. I think it's as simple as it gets when this is the kind of moment where you probably need to get some kind of federal intervention, right? Yes. Um, if, and if, I, if, I don't know. Yeah, like exactly. Like I don't, we talked about, like, I don't know if that's Merrick Garland saying, hey, this is a civil rights violation uh, <laughs> to basically throw people's representatives out for protesting. Like, I don't know what the form is, but something, uh, Brandon uh, would be, uh, Joe Brandon would be nice. And before, um, I mean, we'll, we'll be covering this, so the vote will be on Thursday. I'm doing a Griscom stream on Thursday, so I'll talk about that amongst other things. Um, I do just have to throw this up here because it wouldn't be left reckoning if we didn't make this point. Um, because anytime something like this happens, you, of course, get all these anti-Southern um, takes from people in the media. Uh, so that O'Brien um, being the uh, embodiment of it this week, saying, Tennessee people, why do you elect these ignorant people? Um, and again, like we're talking about um, a significant portion, just like in every state of people who aren't Republicans, who are straight up having their right to be represented by whom they choose being threatened. And there is like a very clear attempt to subvert that. Um, I think um, Afton Ben on Twitter um, really uh, like highlighted this well. Um, it's challenging when they've rigged ele elections, lo neutered local power and removed our ability to pass popular ballot measures. Um, and there's a very fa famous meme now, if, if you haven't seen it before, don't make me tap the sign. The South is full of good people that are on your side that are held back by gerrymandering, disenfranchi disenfranchisement, and regressive politics, right? And that's just like, that's the state of the nation, frankly, not just the state of the South. Um, when you're talking yeah. about building working class politics in this country, but Lord, um, you know, if we could maybe show some solidarity with folks and try to find ways that we can help people who are pushing back against this kind of stuff, um, instead of deciding to attack a bunch of poor and working class people anytime something bad happens um, in the South, I would be very thankful. Yeah, should have voted better. It's just crazy <laughs> voted detached. More, right? It's just like, you know, I don't know. It's just like, you know, it's like, 
yeah anyway that's a whole other conversation we've done it a bunch it's just it's ludicrous it's silly um and i'm pretty damn tired of it especially when the stakes are as high as they are all right folks uh now we are going to welcome to the show keith brower brown keith is a correspondent for labor notes you can read his writing in uh labor notes as well as jacobin and uh, in these times on this uh, uaw reform process keith welcome to the show Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Yeah, happy to do it. Uh, we are excited to uh, touch on this. Um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, electoral politics and sort of the democratization and uh, and, and pressure there. Um, and this story, I think, is a bit of a breath of fresh air. Now, just to get everybody on the same page, what is the UAW and what is its place in American labor? Right. So UAW in general stands for United Auto Workers, but also represents a ton of agricultural implement workers, a John Deere, a ton of graduate student workers uh, like me at the University of California now make up almost a quarter of the 400,000 members of the UAW. And then uh, over half are in auto and other manufacturing still. And then there's a smattering of like uh, public workers, museum workers, logistic workers also in the mix and uh and so this uh reform process uh we, we you know we talk about you know unions as just you know you achieve a union and it's you've democratized the workplace um i think is maybe a, a naive <laughs> way of looking at this thing um of course if you, these unions have their own sort of uh, undemocratic structures talk about uh the uaw the conditions inside the uaw and you can get as historical as you want um with regards to what sort of uh how like responsive this organization is to its membership and uh leading up to these reform efforts sure so Unions have this promise to be the most democratic institutions in society where we, the workers and members, figure out how we're going to take on the boss together. And yet, a lot of times, it's really hard to do that in practice. You know, there are real obstacles to bringing people working 12-hour shifts, six days a week, into setting the course of a huge 400,000-person organization. So in the UAW, there's probably no union that better epitomizes both the sort of rise and fall of American labor in most people's minds uh, than this union where you have this huge upsurge in the 1930s of militant sit-down strikes and really creative worker leadership on the floor, uh, a ton of different left currents active in the union. Then in the late 40s, early 50s, you have this sort of lockdown of a ruling group which comes to be known as the Administration Caucus, which then for the last 70 years has been the one-party state of the UAW mm -hmm. and has made the entire staff and leadership apparatus at the higher levels totally fused with this caucus, where nobody on the board with one exception in all that time uh, on the top board of the UAW was not from this caucus. So it's pretty tight lockdown. Of course, that doesn't really matter to most members or come up except for the fact that the union is making huge concessions during this time in the 50s and 60s it becomes sort of the leader of uh setting the bar for the american labor movement winning cost of living adjustments or cola uh and thus sort of taking the rising cost of living out of the equation for workers which was at the time was sort of a compromise 
but now it looks like, damn, we want to get that back. Yeah. Uh, so winning stuff like that makes it this leader across the labor movement. It does pattern bargaining where you have one of Ford, Chrysler, GM bargain or go on strike first. And then that sets the pattern for others. And then other unions pattern their contract off the UAW auto contracts. So that was the leadership. But then without continuing to develop democracy and militancy at the roots of the union, you start to see some of that power fall apart and the auto companies and their investors start to say, we can break this union by uh, basically shifting a lot of production to anti-union states in the South, uh, some of it overseas, but more than that, just like shifting around production into subsidiaries, into uh, lower tiers of work. So saying, oh, this is actually parts work now. This is something that you, you know, you union auto workers don't have to do, or you're going to be paid half as much for doing. So especially in the recession, the union leadership starts to agree to these contracts where there's these really stark differences. If you're a new worker after 2008, you will never get a pension. You will never get health care after retirement. Your wage is going to be lower from day one. And most of that has not been made up since. Some of the wages, but the pension and healthcare is not. Mm. So that pissed off a lot of auto workers for understandable reasons and uh, started to foster a really, a, apparently a pretty powerful movement to take back our union. There had been prior reform movements going back to the 50s, you know, when this one party state started, there's always been people fighting really important upsurges in the late 60s and 70s of black workers in Detroit, especially in uh, Kansas City, St. Louis, Texas area in the 80s. But it was really this this last upsurge that finally, uh, you know, went over the crest. We won the right to democratic elections uh, about a year and a half ago and then won those first elections. Could you could you could you break down what that means for folks who aren't familiar with the, the democratic elections mean? Yeah. So in a lot of unions, the top leadership is not directly elected by members. You don't get a vote for the president of your own union in a lot of cases. Uh, instead, your local, your union local elects delegates. So you get to vote for a delegate to a national convention, but these are often uncontested elections. And it's basically just local leaders who end up winning or basically appointing people uh, who are uncontested. So the those delegates then pick the president and pick the whole top leadership board. And it's sort of like a snake eating its own tail of people mm -hmm. patting each other on the back and saying like, okay, we, you know, we're going to keep running this thing together. Uh, and it's hard to challenge and break into that. So in 20, in the last sort of five to eight years, a huge corruption scandal broke in the UAW that key figures, including presidents in the administration caucus, um, were embezzling money, were making backroom deals with the auto corporations themselves to give auto workers worse contracts, essentially. And we're getting golf bags and stupid stuff out of it, but we're selling out their duty in a lot of ways. And as a result of that, a federal monitor was appointed that came in similar process happened in the teamsters and in the laborers union mm -hmm. uh, in the 80s and 90s respectively and in this case the monitor said we're going to require a referendum where every member gets to vote on whether they want 
the right to vote for the top officers. So we had a first vote just to say, do we want direct elections? We said yes by almost two thirds. Uh, big surprise, people voted that they wanted to vote. <laughs> and then uh, finally we got our chance to actually campaign on a vision for what we wanted for the union. And we, we had been pushing, I think all along this idea that we needed to end concessions in the tier system and in corruption. And that, that's been the rallying cry of the UAWD caucus or Unite All Workers for Democracy going back to its inception about four or five years ago. Before we get into the UAD uh, caucus, were, were there rationalizations for the uh, continued lack of democracy or did it just kind of continue through inertia? Like, I guess early, like yeah. for, for a good portion, it was like, we're delivering goods. And then it was like, well, we delivered goods relatively recently. And is it now just a case where it's like, well, no one within living memory remembers when this was actually working for anybody. That's totally a problem. You know, shifting to a new system always brings some qualms. But I think there, there were some defenses of the old system. Uh, for the first time in history, the administration caucus actually came out as a public force that had never like admitted its own mm. existence or its own name, even though everybody mm. knew it. And it created this website saying, that was called Protect the Wheel. And the wheel is the logo of the UAW, the sacred symbol of our solidarity. And uh, they said, we have to protect the wheel, protect our union uh, by allowing experienced people to, you know, our delegates to make this decision, hash it out together in a room rather than just the, the chaos of open-ended demagoguery in the membership. And there is this implication that like the members can't be trusted in the same way that these, you know, more experienced leaders can be. Um, aside from that, I think there, yeah, there's also sort of a, some voices saying, well, there could be selfishness instead of looking out for retirees or instead of looking out for, uh, the new organizing needs, because obviously we're at 10% union membership in this country. We need to be mm -hmm. organizing a lot more workers. What if we're just looking out for like our own, you know, current wages or something like that? Mm. Uh, but again, I think that, you know, assumes a lot too little of most union members that being a part of a union shows you the power of solidarity when we're at our best and shows you why we need to fight on behalf of a broader multiracial mm -hmm. working class in a way that, uh, you know, being a union leader, making a, a really solid salary might not be a better guide to that than just being a, a rank and file worker. So uh, not to preempt too much what we're going to talk about specifically with the UAW, but Keith, I'm curious if like, so like we, we, you were just mentioning like how low union density is in this country. Um, you know, you were mentioning the corruption scandals. Um, and I think that like, there is like a real need. And I think it's, we're seeing in the UAW, we're seeing it in the Teamsters, we're seeing in a lot of like union movements in this country to really democratize these, these structures and, and these systems. I see sometimes because, um, you know, the union movement is, has been on the back foot for my life. Right. And probably the generation before me too, 
that sometimes amongst people, there's like a hesitancy to sort of be able to play ball on like two different fronts, right? Like recognizing that like we need to be expanding union membership in this country. And also within the union movement itself, like we definitely need a lot more democratization. I'm just curious for you as somebody who writes about this, as somebody who has a union member, like how do you sort of, you know, walk that line where it's like, you know, we're not playing into, for example, like the union busters who are going to come in there and say, oh, you know, these are all corrupt, blah, blah, blah. They're not democratic. Mm -hmm. They don't want to support you, right? Like making these 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 criticisms and trying to build and make the union move more more democratic without sort of falling into like anti-union talking points is what I'm asking. That's a really important goal. I mean, we're in a very, uh, despite the 70% of Americans who say they like the idea of unions, it's a very hostile world mm -hmm. to try and organize labor. And I think for UAWD, the key has been to focus on positive reforms that will strengthen the power of the rank and file in fighting the boss. Just keep mm -hmm. bringing it back to fighting the boss. We do, you know, mm -hmm. one of the three top slogans, no tears, no concessions, no corruption. Corruption is there. A lot of people are pissed about that for understandable reasons, but that has not been a major, major focus of what we've put to put forward at uh, UAW conventions like the one last summer, the one last week. We've uh, really focused on getting bigger and earlier strike pay to strengthen the ability of more workers to go out and strike. And we won major reforms on that last summer. Uh, at this last convention last week, uh, we were pushing for stronger strike preparation and a real uh, contract campaign that would get members putting pressure on the boss and organizing each other creatively, not just waiting around for September for the bargaining team to figure stuff out and then maybe call a strike. So focusing on those sort of like concrete ways that mm -hmm. we're going to beat the boss is the key. Union democracy on its own matters to some people, but if you really want to get a lot of busy, tired, stressed out people to uh, realize that we can be stronger by fighting this out together, we got to bring it back to fighting the boss. And what are some of those? Like, how do you make that pitch? Well, it's not hard when the boss has been as brutal as they have been in auto uh, and, I mean, across the UAW and higher ed, too. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a lot of really brutish low wages and discriminatory and harassing bosses, you know, across the board. So uh, having a stronger approach to striking, both in terms of advanced preparation, building up more member-led kind of contract campaigns has been an idea. We've been trying to build up also a very labor notes kind of approach, but <laughs> across many unions is there. There's uh, a real you know, focus on tiers as this essential divide and conquer strategy from totally. the boss that we need to get beyond. Uh, and there's a version of that in auto in other parts of manufacturing, uh, certainly in higher ed with adjuncts and many different mm -hmm. tiers of workers doing similar work for uh, very unequal pay and security. So th those issues have helped us talk to each other across sectors. And yeah, I think that trying to keep focused on, you know, we're going to do these reforms internally in our union so that we can get back to fighting the boss uh, and have a lot more strength to do it has been the key. Uh, you know, we haven't always made that clear enough or, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to convey, but Apparently, it was clear enough in the end that we were able to win a majority 
of the top board of the top officers of the union in this election, including the presidency. Uh, and now the ball is in the court of reformers to essentially deliver on these the strategies. And it's going to be a, a tall order. You know, this is the harder, better work to have cut out for us. Uh, but I, I feel pretty hopeful. I mean, let's let's talk about the, the this reform movement. I mean, could you talk about Sean Fain and the, this uh, UAW presidential campaign? Sure. So Sean Fain was the uh, candidate of the Reform Caucus and sort of broader coalition of reformers across the UAW uh, under the Members United slate. He is a proud UAWD member and came to UAWD events to really say how proud he was to be a member and uh, participate in the last week convention and prior. So that's pretty special to have a union president now who is you know, an active participant in rank and file caucus that, uh, you know, goes beyond the situation, the team series where you have allies of the rank and file caucus who have made it to presidency. So very excited about that. Sean comes out of uh, being an electrician uh, in the UAW in Indiana, and then becoming a local president, uh, a leader among uh, skilled trades workers, joining international staff as a rep, and being a, a very rare kind of dissident voice within the mm -hmm. UAW International Union, speaking out against concessions. Uh, and then there were, were uh, a bunch of other auto worker local leaders elected to the top officer board, like Margaret Mock, who uh, comes out of a Chrysler Stellantis local and becomes now secretary treasurer. Uh, and then there was one uh, higher ed worker, former president of the Harvard Grad Students Union, who gets elected the president or the regional director of the Northeast region that includes a lot of higher ed units. So nice mix, sort of very closely tracks the actual membership of the union. And uh, yeah, just one last person I'll mention I'm very excited for is uh, Dan Vicente, who uh, just a couple of weeks ago was working on the shop floor in Pennsylvania in a mm. shipbuilding or manufacturing uh, facility and ran, you know, just with great principles and a strong movement behind him and ended up being a very entrenched regional director. I mean, I can't tell you just like from what I've been seeing in the UAW to what I've been seeing in the teams, there's like feeling very excited to see what's going to happen over the next couple of years. I'm curious um, if you could give folks a, a sense. I know it's not always as easy um, as, as people would like, but y'all labor notes do a good job at this. Like, you know, what's the makeup of, of, of these voters? I mean, like who is showing up and supporting this this campaign, um, you know, in, in, in general? Well, I'm not going to go all Nate Silver on you with like a detailed breakdown. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, top line, what's exciting? Like yeah, anything yeah. you saw when you when you got into it that was like, oh, that's interesting. Or Yeah. So there are about 400,000 active members of the UAW today and about 600,000 retirees. And retirees had the right to vote in this election. And that's something that reformers campaigned for to ensure they would. Uh, their pensions are run uh, in significant part by the union. So really important that they should have a say. We actually campaigned for them to have the right to run as candidates too, but the incumbents, admin caucus, shot that down. Uh, so in any case, it was, it was sort of this big question mark how they would come, but it turned out that retirees uh, in general were 
quite supportive of a reform, which was not something you yeah. could necessarily guess in advance. Then among uh, the big three auto companies, there is this clear sort of trend where Chrysler Stellantis, as it's now called, uh, which has been the most sort of brutally treated by the boss in a lot of ways, had, has had the worst shake on the shop floor. Uh, they pushed really hard for reform. Uh, they voted really strongly for the Members United reformer slate. Then Ford, which has sort of gotten the best shake and has had, in some ways, the most like profitable corporation and gotten a slightly better deal along the way, and has been sort of the apple of the eye of UAW leadership for years, they ended up pretty heavily backing the incumbents, um, mm. with a few exceptions. And then uh, GM sort of fell in the middle. And other sectors were mixed, but higher ed um, only made up about 2.5% of voters overall, okay. uh, even though it's closer to 20, 25% of membership. Uh, so that was like a low voter turnout or? Low voter turnout, yeah, reflecting mm. a lot of factors, uh, you know, high turnover of members in those locals because mm. people leave within five to seven years. And also for auto workers, the international union negotiates your contract mm. is directly the bargaining team is the top leadership of the union in a higher ed local like mine and at the university of California, you elect your own local bargaining team who handles stuff. So the international is kind of just this far away thing where, mm -hmm. you know, we did get, uh, 83, 84% support for reformers out here, but turnout was low, no matter our efforts. Uh, just because it's like so far from the mind of your everyday concerns. Do do uh, members from uh, closed shop have closed shops have the right to vote in these? Yeah, good question. If they're retirees, they do. Okay. Um, Can you guys explain yeah. the uh, the terminology closed shop? So, with all those plant closures that I was mentioning earlier, that were by design of the corporations to. Uh, help bust the union as much as they could. You have huge numbers of locals that basically their plant no longer exists. And so there's still a local number. There's in some cases might still be like a local organization of retirees or members who used to work there who stay in touch. Um, I'd have to get back to you on, on where the line is drawn for those, but there are definitely closed locals that turn in numbers. And my assumption is that most of them were this, you know, people might have to check me on this later. I think I was reading Jonah Furman sort of uh, recap of this. And, and, and he was saying that like some early, there were some early signalings that like a lot of people who were in places, you know, where their shop closed were voting more heavily for, um, um, for the reformers, but again, I don't know if they were retirees or whatnot. Um, but again, like, you know, makes sense in a sense that like, if your shop closes, that you might want to change in leadership. Okay. <laughs> and um, I, I, I know we got a lot more to get to. So just since we have you here, though, I think it is helpful. And I know you probably get this a lot from folks because a lot of people are a little confused as to the graduate um, student side of the union and the auto worker union. I mean, could you just give people a general sense about how that came to be? Because I think it's just a question we get every single time we bring up the UAW. Sure. Yeah. I, I've been asked by plenty of auto workers too at these <laughs> conventions, like, how did, how did this end up happening? Uh, in the 80s and 90s, 
as graduate students, A, started to take on more of the labor on campuses and be more exploited as a result. Uh, there started to be this growth in interest in unionizing uh, in the 90s. Uh, there was a huge success at the University of California unionizing across all 10 campuses at once, essentially. And that became what is now the second largest local in the whole UAW. Uh, hmm. And then postdoctoral researchers and some other kinds of research staff unionized with UAW soon after there. A lot of other universities have followed into the UAW, and it's now the largest union of grad student workers. Um, why did the UAW take a chance and you know support and bring in these workers is a little hard to read because it wasn't a super open, open democratic decision making process at the time at the top level. Um, there are theories ranging from uh, just a good faith belief that this is a way to expand the labor movement mm -hmm. um, to a more kind of suspicious read that uh, the administration caucus at the time thought this would be a way to get in a lot of new members uh, who will pay a lot of dues and will not be as pissed off or have their jobs as threatened as auto workers. So it'll be kind of like a stable dues base when a lot of the rest are leaving. And I don't go in too far for, you know, trying to figure out exactly how it all played out. But at this point, I, I think it has been a, a really fruitful um, collaboration in the reform movement between the different, you know, sides of the union. And, uh, you know, certainly not grad students running the show, uh, you know. No, actually, like, no, just like to be really clear about that, because like, you know, yeah. there's all these this discourse about like the PMC or whatever. You, you, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Like, mm -hmm. This is not like just like just so we're very clear here for anybody who's listening and thinks that like what happened is the UAW expanded and they got a bunch of fancy folks from Columbia or, you know, NYU or no fancy University of California system. And they like overthrew the old guard at like the, you know, the opposition of, of the membership. No, as you were just saying, the, the votes in, in this most recent election was like, what, 2 percent? of 2.5% yeah. were grasses. I think it would be even better if it was 20%, right, fully. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing in and of itself, but also just so we're operating from the sense of, of reality and not creating these these weird tensions that I think a lot of online left media is starting to get really good at doing is trying to find ways to divide the labor movement um, between itself. Um, so anyway, sorry not to cut you off, but I just want to be very explicit about that for anyone listening. Um, back to the uh, the auto workers. Can we move to why this is actually an important point in auto making history that uh, we start to democratize this workplace? You know, David's uh, been talking about this electric vehicles as uh, something we need to make sure uh, is not an end around union shop. So can you just touch a little bit on uh, electric vehicles, then we can maybe broaden out to the uh, green economy uh, uh, larger. Definitely. So right now, basically the entire U.S. auto industry is shifting hard towards electric vehicles. And, uh, you know, GM has said majority by 2030, we're talking like the end of this decade, majority of their vehicles they're selling, kind of be electric vehicles, uh, may end up being faster because uh, CEOs, turns out, love electric vehicles a lot of the time because it saves on labor costs and it uh, is a union busting strategy as it's been mm -hmm. conceived a lot of the time from uh, investors and 
executives at these companies where they're going to move a large amount of production out of these top tier union factories into uh, non-union joint ventures or subsidiaries that uh, are paid at parts wages or even worse, where you have temporary workforces where you're trying to like simplify the production process uh, and cut out the union as much as possible. And so far, unfortunately, they've succeeded at that more than you would like. Uh, this kind of began in a spicy side story under the recession again. Uh, Obama, as part of the bailout of the automakers, said, well, it wasn't Obama's help, but part of this deal that he supported and pushed through was that the factory where the Chevy Volt was being made at the time, mm -hmm. the sort of pilot of this whole EV model, was going to be at a lower tier to try and save money for the company. And that ended up in some significant way setting a template for the whole auto industry that this is going to be lower tier work. We're going to get away with making, uh, you know, the drivetrain of the car at what we mm -hmm. used to pay someone who makes, uh, you know, just the siding on a door or something like that and turns out some plastic piece. But this is, you know, extremely technical work. A lot of the time doing chemical engineering adjacent kinds of work uh, beyond my chemistry abilities for sure. <laughs> so a big almost existential question for the UAW in this moment is how do you make sure this work is not just unionized, but at top tiers. And uh, to that challenge, a major theme of Sean Fain's campaign and of the convention last week was we're going to unionize this transition. Uh, we're not going to allow these companies to say just because they're shuffling the work into some shady joint venture that it doesn't fall under a UAW contract. We're going to demand this year in the contract negotiations uh, that the EV work all falls under our contracts already. New plants are going to be automatically unionized would be the takeaway from that. But then actually boosting up that work to a higher tier might be a longer battle. We'll see. Uh, if we get rid of significant parts of tiers in the contract as well, that would be two birds with one stone. Uh, you would bring up the EV work too. And then there's a whole question of how you help those workers in these emerging plants, especially if they're, you know, in Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, are getting a lot of this EV work. Uh, how do you help those workers themselves build up strong fighting democratic unions, not just show up, oh, you have a union, great, but actually really help them lead what this union will become in EV workplaces, that's going to be a key question for us to figure out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's critical in a lot of ways, not just in the UAW, but like <clears throat> you see here in Texas and I'm assuming in the rest of the country, like, you know, solar panel installation is like oftentimes sort of put up against organized labor here. Um, you know, and there's this kind of mentality. It's like, oh, it's green is good. And it's like, totally, you know, let's build more green stuff. Let's save the environment. But like, you know, capitalism bosses want to do the same shit that they have always done, whether or not it's a combustion engine or an EV vehicle. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, as a, so this is like a, a fairly, um, I mean, this is like recent, the, the change in like the, the more direct democracy 
Um, are there any things else that are sort of happening within the union in addition to like being able to vote for leadership that you might want to highlight as things that are making it feel more democratic or is it really like this ability for union members to have influence over leadership that is like the, the crux of this reform? The emergence of a strong rake and file caucus is itself kind of a step mm-hmm. forward to have a, a space for workers, no matter if they're on their first day, rank and file newbie to uh, you know local president can all hash out ideas together. Uh, that's pretty new for at least decades and it's a really good step. Uh, mm-hmm. And UAWD has been really committed to serious internal democracy and, uh, you know, welcoming people from different sectors. So that's a good step. Um, sells lots of room to grow, but uh, this moment is one where you know, that, can, that could happen fast. Beyond that, uh, there's been a, a turn towards more striking recently across mm-hmm. a bunch of different workplaces. And I have witnessed with my own eyes how the immediate kind of stakes of a strike bring out a creativity from rank and file workers in a way that a lot of other kinds of union activity, it's harder to get there. But when suddenly it's like, wait, we could, we're risking losing our jobs or we're, you know, our contract is on the line and uh, there's a picket line and you're either on one side or the other that can mm-hmm. really bring out uh, a kind of solidarity of communal creativity of risk taking that helps the union uh, be this living fighting animal going forward. So the fact that we had a major strike at John Deere a few years ago that yeah. inspired people across uh, our union, across many different sectors. Uh, GM went on strike in 2019, not the not a super successful strike, disappointing in key ways, but also showed that there's this continued willingness to strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an amazing thing about the UAW that you might expect with that sort of anti-democratic leadership for a long time that striking wouldn't really be a a muscle anymore well actually when strike votes happen in auto and other parts of the uaw they usually pass by you know 95 98 percent and then participation is super high in auto strikes in the Mm. uaw where everybody knows like you turn out you you do not cross the line uh so how that has been maintained is its own whole own deep history to figure out, but uh, it's, it's exciting and makes it feel like uh, a September auto strike. And one of the big three automakers this fall with a combination of this uh, more militant leadership, that's going to draw a hard line and build a stronger contract campaign, a caucus helping build that from below a rank and file. That's clearly pissed off enough to boot the old leaders uh, and this, you know, enduring muscle of striking together, that could start to win back a huge amount of what's been lost. That'd be huge. Um, unless you have anything else, Matt, do we want to talk about DSA? Yeah, I'm just curious, Keith. I watched your talk uh, with DSA uh, on the uh, Revolutionary Green New Deal. I'm just curious, you know, we talk a lot about uh, DSA attempting to impact things on the electoral front. How do you conceive of DSA's role on the labor front? Sure. So, I've been a member of East Bay DSA since late 2016 and uh, have helped out with a lot of strike support campaigns. And I think that's sort of the the no-brainer, really useful way that DSA can uh, Mm -hmm. help back strikes by 
turning out members to picket lines. It can, I've seen DSA in Oakland be the key sort of community support organization for the Oakland teacher strike and then a public healthcare worker strike here a couple of years later. Uh, not just turning out to picket lines, but also organizing uh, food for picket lines and for kids missing school, helping organize childcare, all that, all that sort of creative. Mm -hmm. you know, this is like mutual aid in the moment where it's like really mutual, where it's like this is going to help the class have a breakthrough. And it, you know, brought everybody together. Even people have been fighting about mutual aid like three months before. We're like, okay, this is a moment where like, yeah, it's totally worth doing. Um, so beyond picket support and strike solidarity, uh, there's spreading the word about labor. Uh, a handful of different chapters do like local newsletters or like reporting, interviews with workers, uh, sort of like a mini labor notes approach. I think that's a great thing to do, even just as a way mm -hmm. for members to learn about what's going on and build some connections. Um, political education, I think might be the most sort of like enduring but sort of behind the scenes role of DSA, I've seen, mm -hmm. you know, for myself and for tons of other people active in this UAW reform movement, um, that DSA was a place where they learned a lot about politics and how to organize, uh, sometimes organizing electoral campaigns, sometimes strike solidarity, sometimes in you know, socialist night schools. And that's, uh, I think, a really important role for it to play going forward is just being this landing pad for new leftists to figure out where to plug in, maybe take a union job down the line. Maybe. I mean, I love the rank yeah. and file strategy a lot nice. personally. Me too. Big fan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's beautiful to see, uh, you know, hundreds of DSAers at least. And I'm sure there are plenty that I beyond my view who have taken jobs, uh, in nursing, as electricians, as teachers, um, mm. with a vision of helping build fighting unions. And there's just a power you can have from being a union member, working with people every day together uh, that you're not gonna have as just like an outside activist. And we need a lot more of that. Um, there's an organization starting up soon called the Rank and File Project, having a national launch in the next month or so, if I remember right, that's sort of aimed mm -hmm. at helping more people do that, um, whether they're fully socialist or just sort of young radicals looking to help change the world in some way and want some mentorship. So I'm excited to see more of that happen. Do we want to get to our boy Maddie, Maddie for a second? Well, I feel like we kind of already addressed the Matt Iglesias. Yeah. Uh, I just, I just, you know, if we're not going to get to him, I just have to say, <laughs> when I was in college in D.C., Maddie Iglesias would come to my bar that I worked at all the time in a box t-shirt. Awful tipper. And like, look, I'm, I'm nobody. Like, if you don't drink, that's that's fine. But he would sit there for fucking like four hours with people, and would just drink Coke, which I never charge anybody for Coke because it felt wrong would leave nothing and would always wear Vox branded shit with the fucking mustard stain on it. And I don't know. Um, funny, funny guy. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, uh, really, really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us, Keith. I mean, this is, uh, is, I think what's happening again in the UAW, I think across the labor movement in general, it should like, you know, like the excitement for unions in this country is great. Seeing more militancy from unions themselves, I think should get you even more excited. Um, because that's how they build when people say, oh, that's the thing that's going to improve my life. 
um, mm-hmm. which I think should be the focus of a lot of our politics. Absolutely. Yeah. This year uh, with UPS, hopefully going on a incredible strike and uh, uh, one of the UAW big three going on a strike could be a real turnaround for private sector union militancy. So uh Excited to be a part of it with yeah. you and a lot of the folks hopefully listening. Well, thank you well, so much, Keith. We're going to have, yeah. oh, sorry, Matt. I was just going to say, Keith, where should people follow uh, your you so they can uh, keep abreast of this? Sure. So I'll uh, be writing for Labor Notes about the UAW and electric vehicles throughout this oh, yeah. year. Uh, labornotes.org. Tons of resources for how to build your union and current coverage there. And then... Uh, I have a Twitter at Trails and Ways. Uh, you can follow me there, although I'm a pretty minimal poster. But uh, <laughs> good one I do. It seems like you're do- using your uh, time a little bit more wisely. Than, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so, friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but thank you so much, Keith. We'd love to do it again sometime in the future. And uh, yeah, folks, definitely keep uh, abreast on on Keith's work at Labor Notes. Thank you both. Great to be thank here. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Keith. See you. Also, friends, um, you know, if this wasn't enough of a labor injection, next week we're also going to have Paul Prescott on the show, um, who is an organizer now with the Teamsters um, himself. Um, Y'all know him and love him from the Jackman Show. Great show. Sad that's not on anymore. Um, Yeah. He's going to be talking to us about Tony Mazzocchi, who is a very famous an excellent um, American labor leader and thinker and writer. Um, really looking forward uh, to that. And like, you know, dude, that's two, that's two left reckoning guests who have, who have run for office, yeah. not one, and then got into being the labor movement. Cause Chris, is I down think that's there a with better way to go about it. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> in terms of post electoral careers. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like actually like, Oh, that's better, even better. <laughs> I'm not trying to start flame wars. Probably like better, I mean, probably than just spending all of your time attacking uh, the left, like some folks have done in maybe the San Francisco area. But let's uh, we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm really excited. I mean, that was really great talking with Keith. And like, look, I mean, like this is something that, like, I, you know, trying to find the balance here, where it's like we got to build up the labor movement in this country. There's no doubt about it. But also, like, like we're not just like libs you know what i mean uh when it comes to labor movement, we want real strong working class rooted militant labor unions like that's what we need right um and like i don't think it's a good idea to sort of just like deliver uh this enthusiasm um you know to two systems that like are riddled with problems without saying like we got to build a labor movement and we also have to make these more democratic it's like a two-tiered thing and i think the cowardice might be too strong of a word but like the the quiet way that a lot of people talk about this i think is isn't good like you can say like uaw is great we want to see the uaw grow it's even better when they have more militant rank and file leadership than they might have had in the past and the idea that you can you know sort of give rise to a culture of political debate and sort of like um internal debate uh is amazing like from i mean that like it sounds like the pri (laughs) like right Mm -hmm. like the one party state for decades and decades (laughs) um like really you know that and and that you get instead everybody engaged that just creates like think of all the different like like that just 
you don't develop like a Mick Lynch, I feel like, when you don't have <laughs> yeah. that sort of debate, right? Like, I just feel like that, and no, maybe totally. I'm giving the RMT too much credit, but like, I just feel like that is a product of that sort of like active, engaged sort of membership. And I mean, that's really, it's. Well, that's yeah, what a union uh, like has to be. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, and like, there's a big difference, for example, between making those critiques and doing what like the World Socialist website did when they showed up to workers on a picket line and were trying to selectively quote them to make it seem like they were against. The miners uh union right like that's bad right. that's not how you do that um anyway so uh, we're gonna go to the post game in in just a couple minutes um don't forget folks oh i gotta change this right quick so we can do this um don't forget folks you can leave us a message at one nine four zero two eight nine seven two three four uh, we'll be talking about a couple other things, taking y'all's calls and questions. Um, but we're going to talk about the Trump stuff. Um, you know, at, at a certain point, like, I don't know, everyone knows it. I think Matt and I are going to talk more holistically about what we think about it. I think we, Matt and I generally agree, but maybe it'll be a friendly debate. You'll have to see at patreon.com uh, slash left reckoning. I wanted to do um, a quick segment that we're debuting this week, and we're going to probably do more of these, which we're, we're going to call quick takes, right? Um, where we sort of take a topic and we talk about it for a couple minutes before uh, we run. And this week I wanted to talk about an idea that I think is too hegemonic to use a fancy word on the left right now. Um, I'm going to talk about it actually more technically and theoretically during the Griscom stream this week. I've been working on it for a little while, but maybe as just a teaser, um, I wanted to talk about some of the tendencies that we see on the left when it comes to talking about the general um, public. I don't know if you have this aversion that I do, Matt. I don't like the term normie that no, people yeah. use. I think it's really alienating. I get what people are trying to get at. Like, There's no doubt about it that people who consume a lot of political media and all this kind of stuff maybe aren't representative of like the general media consumption habits of the general population. Mm -hmm. um, but it creates this weird divide, right? Um, between like you as a listener, you as a creator, whatever, and like the rest of the public, because like, look, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, you know, out of, out of line here, but like, I find myself to be a fairly normal person. Like I don't make a lot of money. I have to work on the side. I live in the same community I grew up in. I live in the same town I grew up in. You know, I talk to my neighbors. I talk to my friends, et cetera, right? And like, I've always just been like a, a, a working class kid. Maybe one thing that's unique about me is that like, yes, I am a socialist, right? But I came to that from being from where I'm from, from being a working class person, from wanting a better world. And these kind of weird walls that people create between themselves and like the rest of society, I don't think is a very good tactic um, for building like solidarity and community and all these kind of things. Right. right. Um, but that's a minor quibble. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is this kind of idea. And we've talked about all time on left reckoning, but it's just this idea that like the American public is sort of sleepwalking their way through life. And maybe like in what our goal is, as, as like enlightened members of society is that we're going to shake people and wake them up. Right. You see it on on our side and in, in the way people say, like, oh, I think everyone's a socialist. They just don't know enough yet, right? And look, I think political education is important because of po what political education does is not teach you that things are messed up and that you're being abused and your boss doesn't have your best interest. It, what it does is it connects a lot of things together so that you can see yourself as a member of a class 
um, rather than yourself as an individual who sort of just has on, on the wrong end of the stick. Right. Um, but this idea that like people are confused or bamboozled or don't understand the world around them, I think is a very, very big problem in a lot of like left wing outreach. And also just like as a, on the level of like strategy, like if you think that like the problem is like, we just haven't created the right media or we haven't put forward the right argument, right? We get questions all the time on the show, right, Matt, about how do I talk to this person or how do I talk to that person? How do I win this fight? Right. And, you know, I, I know it might be a little boring, but we always come back to the same thing. Like the only thing that you can do is try to work very hard to build the organization and the, um, unity and the effectiveness of yourself as a member of, of the working class to be able to build institutions and organizations that are, are able to achieve the things that we get at. Like, I just like, you look at it time and time again, you look at like support for Medicare for all extremely high. You look at support for unions, extremely high. The question here is not about waking up the sleeping masses, right? you know, to like why these are the right ideas. It's showing them that doing this is in their benefit and will be achievable. A lot of people, when they hear things like a just transition, like Medicare for all, like higher rates of unionization, they're like, I want those things. I like those things, right? That's not the qualm. The qualm is, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't know if I want to spend a lot of time with people on the outskirts of society, <laughs> you know, pushing for something that I don't think is, is going to work out. I might be more interested in sort of looking out for my immediate interests and my family's interests and trying to see if I can, you know, create like an island for myself that is able to escape these things. And that's a bad mentality, right? I'm not saying that that's not a problem, um, but it's a much more rational and realistic um, look at the world than this kind of idea that like all these people are just so confused. They don't understand the world around them. And you see this time and time again in media. Right. Like the most recent thing was this like Marjorie Taylor Greene thing on 60 Minutes. And like, look, 60 Minutes sucks, y'all. Like, I don't uh, I don't think I have to say that, but just going to say that. Like, I watched the interview. I watched the full thing. Um, it wasn't great. Um, stall. Right. Didn't hit like the points she could have hit. Um, but then there's all this kind of like, oh, they're platform Marjorie Taylor Greene. And like she's going to bamboozle and confuse people. It's like. You know, the people who are already going to think that the Democratic Party is a cabal of like pedophiles were already there before they interacted with that sense of media. And I think yeah. more problematic for me than like the 60, like the quality of the 60 minutes thing is like this tendency on the left to be like, well, all these people are just like so easily bamboozled and so easily tricked by rhetoric from the right um that like you know we have to be against us just like for the very re for the specific reason that they interviewed this person because you have a very low expectation of your neighbors your comrades your coworkers that they see something like this and they're going to get pulled into that stream i think that's a really bad mentality to build a kind of strong working class movement I think MTG is extremely dangerous. I think the movement she represents is very, um, not just dangerous, it's cruel, it's wicked, and it's certainly not going to do anything to improve people's lives, right? I'm with you on all of those criticisms here, except for the one that you don't think that people have the ability to be able to work through these things. And even more so, I disagree with the idea that like what we need is for media elites in this country to sift through information and provide present it in a way um, to you or to the public at large 
that it's like very explicit, like this is the bad idea, this is the good idea, right? Yeah. Um, because I think it's like it's a very infantilizing idea. I think it's very condescending. And look, the right exists in this country, and the right is growing in ways that it should alarm you, right? And the way that we have to deal with that is by building our own, um, like expressing and like building a platform to be able to do this, our own view of the world so that we're pulling people towards us versus sort of hoping that super, super rich and influential people are sort of telling people this is a good idea, this is a bad idea, right? And this fixation that we've seen since Trump came into power, that we sort of want these people sitting at the top of society to sort of designate to the masses truth and fiction i found to be a very very dangerous outsourcing of what is our responsibility to be building something um that is not only critiquing and saying marjorie taylor green the trump movement etc don't got nothing for you and in fact they are against your interests right but we're also building something that can achieve those kind of interests yeah i mean that's the, the two points one is just that you know, faith and fellow man democracy point where it's similar to the rank and file. Like, is UAW going to trust its rank and file to do this stuff, or does that need? Do they need to be shepherded? The second is you're giving sixty minutes way too much credit. Okay, so what if they pulled the uh, Marjorie Taylor Green thing, right? And they even conceded, yeah. like, yeah, Leslie Stahl didn't do a good job here. We're pulling it. Well, then what you've done is frankly legitimize the rest of six minutes when they have Larry Summers come on like eight times <laughs> a year, so come true. on and say like working people, you know, need to starve more, and this is just like do what the numbers tell me. Um, or on so, the yeah. Side. Or on the other side, what if it was just epic John Stewart style hypocrisy segment? Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think that moves us any closer to building a, a working class movement in this country. Do you get what I mean? Like, even yeah, if, I like, mean, the yeah. content was good in the sense of like, oh, every point she made is debunked. Um, I guess like, here's what I'm saying. It's like, we know, we, we like, we criticize the media all the time. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. I think what bothers me, Matt, is or what I'm trying to get at is the the condescending mentality right. is that like people can't figure out for themselves these things. I think that that's a real impediment to building something different. Um, and I think it's a mentality that really needs to get dropped. Like, you know, like, <laughs> um, oh, Lord, and help me. Uh, who's the author of What's the Matter with Kansas? Um, the Baffler. Oh, uh, now you've made it go out of my head. Um, <laughs> Sorry, friend. Shit, um, sorry, bro. Um, Thomas Frank, Thomas Frank, Frank yeah, Thomas yeah. Frank. And like, look, that's one of those books too, by the way, that people cite all the time by like naming the title of it, which is like exactly very, wrong, which is like not what he even argues in that book. What he argues right. is that like the part, the Democratic Party and the left in Kansas used to be for workers and they stopped being for workers. And then it wasn't surprising that the Republicans were able to take advantage of that. Like Thomas Frank's argument there is that the Democratic Party failed the voters there they fail the working class there not that oh the people of kansas are so stupid they can't understand what's going on around them um but again like this is sort of like it just cited you just cite the the title and like this kind of like bad faith mentality um bad faith is like a, a fancy term for like not knowing your own interests not understanding yourself and you know acting in, in a different way and i'm going to talk more like theoretically about this uh, using like Marx and stuff on Thursday. So I don't want to jump too much into it, but like the ideology as the reason that like ideology in the sense of like the way that people understand the world around them, that's sort of given to us through media, through culture, through education, 
um, is what is creating this crisis, I think is wrong. I think it's 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 wrong, and it was a bad turn um, from the left, and it should not surprise people that this is something that came about at the time when left wing and Marxist or Marx adjacent intellectuals turned their back on class analysis and went almost entirely into culture. Right, this is when this thing becomes sort of um, dominant in like left wing thought, um, and you see what the results are. Right, you know, you can criticize movies and television all you want, um, but has that got us any closer to a strong working class movement in this country? I don't think. Yeah. That. Well, also, um, I mean, th- this goes back to this is this does go back to Trump winning, and it is you know like 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 the false reasoning that it was because CNN cut to his debates uh, and gave him free earned media, yeah. which they did, but um, it, that's the reason he won. And no, like the reason they did that and the reason he won are basically the same thing. <laughs> Like, like because he was good TV and uh, and going to win the presidency totally. against somebody who sucked, like, like that's like I, I think yeah, I think it is all just like trying to blame media for what was a political failing. So um, that's the <laughs> the longer version of the quick take. I'm talking about this more in depth on Thursday. I will just respond since this is more of a Griscom stream topic to something in the chat. Shami. Um, says, I agree with you, David, but who on the left are you talking about? I haven't heard anyone on the left that I respect talk or think like that. Would appreciate a steer as to who you were talking about. And I don't mean this as a cop out, um, but like, look, this is something I experience all the time. And, and if you d- don't believe me, like go on my Twitter right now, where I was arguing with people all morning about this. Um, you can see me going back and forth with folks on this very specific uh, topic. Um, Slavoj Žižek, for example, is somebody who promotes this idea. If you want like a big figure, I highly suggest watching his debate with Vivek Chibber on the question of ideology. Um, you know, Žižek, somebody I like, I, I'm interested in. I've, I've read a lot of his stuff, probably more than most other people. Not trying to whatever, but like, I was like really into Lacan and psychoanalysis for a long time. So I spent a, like a very prolonged Žižekian um, period of my life. But that's somebody who makes these kind of arguments. Um, Right. Like this is like, you know, if you don't believe me, fine. But um, like I experience this all the time in my regular. I think the general the general vibe about uh, I mean, you could read it more charitably as people were going to say, oh, six minutes is going to do a bad job. But there were people saying just the mere fact that this media product. Exists well, the platforming is thing, is, it's almost a separate issue. But the platforming thing, I also think, is, again, something that's inherited not from Marxism or socialism, but something that's inherited from liberalism. Right. Yeah. I'm like, here's the thing that, like where maybe me and Ben even disagree. I'm actually like less worked up about people as a community, like showing up at somebody's talk and like coming at them. Right. Um, than other folks are, because I think that that's a very real expression of community power. Right. Um, but I might disagree with some of the people in the membership. There's a with the platforming is a problem. The problem is that these are bad ideas that we have to defeat and engage with and destroy. Right. Yeah. Um, Versus saying like, oh, if these things get a platform, then they will become powerful, right? Which is, again, like a very liberal, idealist way of looking at politics, right? Where it's like ideas shape the world rather than material conditions. Um, anyways, like I'm, I'm, I'm like spoiling the deck for, for what I'm going to talk about on Thursday. So if this titillated your interest, come and watch the Grisham stream Thursday afternoon. And I'll get way more depth yeah. into this than I will right now. 
I will just uh, quote John Milton. I, probably liberal, but revolutionary. Um, <laughs> I cannot praise a fugitive and cloistered virtue. And that's uh, what you wrote in Ariel Pagetica about uh, anti-freedom speech. Yeah, that, that's what a lot of people want. And it's just like, that shit doesn't work. It, it, like, yeah. even if you want it to work, it, that is, it's, it's, there's nothing to it. There's nothing behind it. Well, uh, friends and left reckoners, we're going to jump over the post game. Matt, um, since he did such a historical task of indicting Trump himself, overcoming the uh, other jurors, I'm, I'm going just to uh, folks just to be very clear. Going to break down all of the uh, all of the laws that I disregarded in uh, in pushing for this indictment. No, but Matt and I are going to talk about it because, like you know, I have probably like a pretty mainstream lefty socialist take on. I don't think it's that big of a deal but it's a big historical deal um so we're gonna chat about that we're gonna be taking your calls and questions i have a quick segment on trains in texas um that we'll do um and we'll see all of y'all over there don't forget you can leave us a message at 1940-289-7234 um appreciate everyone so much and uh, we'll see you on just a couple minutes patreon.com slash left reckoning peace